you may remember that last December during Advent, I did a message from the genealogy of Jesus, and that was a matter of, I, it, I think it was 37 names. Jennifer, you only had to read 12. <laughs> Hillary read the 37. So you think, oh, another sermon on names. What can you do with that? Well, actually a lot. We've been, I'm doing this short series from Luke on gospel beginnings, the, the establishment of Jesus' early ministry. This is about the choosing of the twelve. So let's ask God's wisdom as we look into his word. Lord, open our hearts and minds. By the power of your Holy Spirit. That as your word is pro proclaimed. We may hear with joy. What you have to say to us today. Amen. I got a little bored this past week. So. Have an idea. I'm going to leave and I'm going to go out and start a new church, okay? And I want to know if some of you would like to come with me because I already have a core group of people. Can I tell you about them? Would you like to know who you will be joining if I do this? Yes? Okay. There's about 12. A few have horrible temper problems. So in the meeting, they're going to get into massive arguments with you. Probably blow your head off a few times call you names. One is massively melancholy. Another one isn't sure Jesus rose from the dead. Just not quite sure. There's a few that are always trying to be in charge, pushing everyone, out, everyone else out. Um, and I already know that one of them is a complete phony. He'll likely betray you and stab you in the back and ruin your life. You ready to come with me? Uh, no, I think we'll stay here. Okay. I have an idea for you. How about we all go and join a church that's founded by Jesus himself? Do you think that might be a good idea? Yes? Wait a minute, I just described the church Jesus founded, didn't I? This is his choosing of the 12, and I kind of just described this bunch of people that he picked. They would later be equipped to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. But this is where it started. So I want to just look at the 12 and see what conclusions that we can draw. There's a few things that I want to bring out. And the first is simply this. Is that in... His choosing of the 12, this was the church in miniature. This is the beginning of the church 
that Jesus founded. Note that he went up on a mountainside to pray. When you have a huge decision to make, what do you do? You pray for wisdom. And this is above my pay grade to completely understand, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is also fully human, and he's praying to his Father about the 12 that he would choose. So it's Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alvius, Simon, Judas, son of James, and Judas from Iscariot, or probably from Kiriath. Now, how many are there? Twelve. Why twelve? What does that hark back to? The twelve tribes of Israel. Because the church is a continuation of Israel. It was a nation consisting of mostly Jews in the Old Testament, although there were some Gentiles who came in, but it was mostly Jews. But the number 12 is simply Jesus telegraphing to us, I'm going to carry on what Israel was. It is no longer a nation, but it is a community, not just Jews, but it will represent all kinds of people from different countries, different social classes, different racial groups that would all be brought together into one. But it starts right here. This is the church in miniature. Now, the second thing that I want you to see is that uh, it takes all kinds of people, doesn't it? And I will be brief, but let me just summarize the 12 names, give you a big overview, but I think you'll see the point. This is a rather disparate group of people, isn't it? Some were famous, some weren't, some you know about, some we know basically nothing about. Peter, we know him. Also called Simon. He was something of an emergent leader, impulsive, but he loved Jesus. There was the time when many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him, and Jesus said, well, are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And later on, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you people say the Son of Man is? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, it's my Father that revealed that to you. And this confession of Jesus as the Christ was, is the foundation that the church is built on. So he was a prominent leader of the early church, used to being in charge. Andrew was Peter's brother. What do we know about him? Not much. He was Peter's brother. Peter was probably the dominant brother in the family. Then you have James 
and John. James was a prominent leader killed by Herod in Acts 12 to shake up the church. John, we know a lot about. He's called the beloved disciple. And it's very obvious that he had a very special relationship with Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. And he died in exile on the island of Patmos. So you have James and John. But I want to call your attention to James and John. Jesus had a great sense of humor, and he gave them a nickname. Anyone remember what it was? Boanerges, sons of thunder. What do you think that means? It means they were hot-tempered and volatile. Hot-tempered. And they were a little bit forward. A couple of examples. There was a case where James and John come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, what would you like? They make a simple request. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, we want to reign with you as, as kind of co-messiahs with you. That's a simple request, isn't it? <laughs> so Jesus, who again just was so gracious, he said, well, let's think about that. It's going to cost you. Uh, you don't quite know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptized ambassadors? In other words... Can you go to the cross and drink the cup of the wrath of God like I'm going to? And their answer, yeah, we can. <laughs> okay. You will drink the cup. You will be baptized. You will lay it down your life for me. But those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And then he gathered the cell together and the rest of them are indignant. How dare they ask to be co-regents? And I'm sure they were angry that they hadn't thought of asking for it first. And Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. James and John, you can't drink that cup. And leadership in my church isn't about being a co-messiah. It's about servant. Laying down your life. Because that's what I did. The sons of thunder needed to learn a thing or two. And there's a couple of other examples. Uh, I'll just do one where James and John, are, they're walking through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans don't welcome them. And they said, Lord, uh, do you want us to pull a Sodom and Gomorrah and call down fire from heaven on them and destroy them? 
rebuke the city, and he rebuked them. So James and John together, they had a bit of a temper problem. A completely false idea of what it meant to be a leader at all. And they had to learn what it would mean to be servants and not co-messiahs, if you will. Philip, don't know much about him. Bartholomew, he, there's no guile in him, don't know much about him. Matthew, did a whole sermon on him last week. You can listen to that on the podcast. His profession was a tax collector. He was hated by his own people because he collected taxes for the Romans. He stole from his own people. He was banned from the synagogue. I won't repeat what I said last week. But the others, the other 11 would potentially view him as a traitor because he'd spent much of his life doing that. Because he worked for the hated Romans. You have Thomas, and this is interesting. He had a name, another name he was called was that he was Didymus, which means the twin. So he probably had a twin brother and sister. We don't know anything about. But he was melancholy and skeptical, uh, negative. But he was the one who was also skeptical of Jesus' resurrection. Because remember, the apostles would be proclaiming the resurrection when Jesus sent them out, but he was the one who wouldn't believe it. And he heard about it, wouldn't believe it. Jesus confronted him and said, put your hands in my wounds. And he finally believed and said, my Lord and my God. But very slow to believe the truth of the centrality of the gospel. Now, this is very interesting. This isn't in the New Testament, but according to tradition, and I actually have no reason to doubt this, is that as you remember that the apostles scattered throughout the world to proclaim the gospel. And the tradition is that Thomas ended up in a particular country. Anyone know what it is? India, which is about by land, it's about 2,800 miles east of Jerusalem. Now, if you go down Five Forks Trickham Road, and right near the end, you look up on a hill and there's a huge church. That is called, listen carefully, the Martoma Center. Toma, whose name is that? Thomas. That is the center of what we call the Indian Orthodox Church. Because remember, you have Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. Because as you may know, there are a lot of Indian people in our area. And they tend to be Indian Orthodox. And I won't get into all the differences, but it goes all the way back to Thomas. 
So the once skeptic proclaimed the gospel throughout the world, and the fruit of his work is actually right here. And that's about all that we know. But that one, when I learned that, that was fascinating. The skeptic turned proclaimer. You have James, son of Alphaeus, don't know much about him. Thaddeus, don't know much about him. Okay, Simon, the who? The zealot. Do you know what that means? The best understanding of what that, and he's always called Simon the Zealot. It's about all we know about him. But that is most likely an indication of what his political leanings were. Because remember, the Jews just chafed under the domination of the Romans. And the zealots were the people, and it later became more of an official movement, but it was the idea they were kind of the revolutionaries who wanted to burn down the Roman Empire. And later there was a revolt that was quelled, AD 66, AD 70. But you notice you have Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot in the same group. Matthew, who worked for the Romans. Simon, the, who, the Zealot, who wanted to see the whole Roman Empire just burned down. And there, there's, a, there's a great book that I would encourage you to, listen, to read. It's called The Twaining, Twaining, The Terraining of the Twelve, by A.B. Bruce. That's his last name. And he makes this point. He said, it gives us a pleasant surprise to think of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, people who came from such opposite quarters, meeting together in this close fellowship in this little band of the Twelve. Because in the person of these two disciples, extremes met. The tax gatherer and the tax hater. The unpatriotic Jew who degraded himself by becoming a sermon of the Romans and the Jewish patriot who chafed under foreign yoke and sighed for liberation. And this union of opposites wasn't accidental. But it was designed by Jesus as a prophecy of the future to show that in the church there would neither be Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, slave nor free, but only Christ, one and all. Makes you wonder, what kind of conversations did Matthew, the former tax gatherer and, silent, and Simon the Zealot, have over the campfire? Do you think they might have seen the world differently? Sure they did. But Jesus was bringing different kinds of people together to show that my church, my gospel, isn't just for one nation 
for one particular kind of person, but to unite all. Because you may remember, we've said this before, but as the gospel went out to the ancient world, what was the primary question that they had to think about? Do we allow Gentiles into the church or not? The answer, yes. That was always my intention. The true sons of Abraham are those who believe like him. Matthew the tax collector, Simon the development. Um, That's all the names, right? Or did I miss one? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's very ominous, isn't it? And we have to ask, why is he there? Because without getting into all of it, we know that he was part of the divine plan by which Jesus went to the cross. Remember later, Judas, who was a thief, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the Jewish leaders who handed them over to the Romans. But why was it the intention of Jesus to put him as part of the twelve? Did he have to? No. What's the point? It's simply this. Is that in the church, it's possible to look real, but not be. Now the other 11 knew. He looked as real as could be. In fact... Judas had an important job among the 12. Remember what he was? He was the church treasurer. Who do you make church treasurer? The one who's most trustworthy, don't you? Who has some skill at managing money, but you have to trust them. He was capable. But Jesus is showing us this ominous point. You can be a leader in the church, but not be real. And again, A.B. Bruce really helped me think about this. From a human point of view, why did Judas betray Jesus? Was it just for the money? No way. He says it's most likely... Because Jesus completely saw through him. And of course knew exactly what he was. Because remember, Jesus was shaping these 12 through public teaching and through private conversations. What kind of conversation do you think Jesus had with Judas? Was Jesus, the rest were fooled. Was Jesus? No. And I think the best way to understand this was that Jesus 
didn't understand the grace that Jesus offered all of them. And he was exposed as a fraud. Handed Jesus over as a kind of revenge. And what was his end? Instead of coming to any repentance, he went out and hung himself. Because he fell into complete despair. And I'll get back to that in a minute. So there's our church in miniature. Some prominent, some not. Hot-tempered, egotistic people. Some had trouble believing. And at least one who was a complete phony. But looked quite real. So what can we learn for this? Just... As I wrap this up, just a couple of things. First of all, as a church, God has called us by his grace to be one diverse body. It's not by accident that Jesus chose such a diverse group. For he, Ephesians, this was our New Testament, he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. It's easy to live in an echo chamber, isn't it? Where everyone's just like you. It's not so easy to be with people who are different, isn't it? Different parts of the country, different countries, different perspectives. But the glory of the gospel is that it does what most cultures can't do. It is to bring a very diverse group of people into unity in Christ who has shattered the dividing wall. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are a very diverse, weak group of people founded on Christ. That's good news. And finally this. And I think this will be a nice little exercise for you to think as you leave. What can you learn about yourself as you look at each of the 12? Because remember, Jesus is called them to be with him for three years. He sent them out to do ministry, but he called them to be with him. What was he doing? He was shaping their character. Because it doesn't matter how skilled you are. The critical thing is to be shaped by his grace and through relationship with him. We saw a little bit of it, but what kind of conversations do you think Jesus had with the sons of thunder? There's at least three where he rebuked them for being so egotistical. Are you a son of thunder? 
Maybe you need the fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness, which can only happen by grace. Are you a take-charge person? Don't let it go to your head. If you're more in the background, don't feel bad. God has a place for you. And I want to finish by just making a point about out of Judas. Because we really need to hear this. Now, my guess is that if you are a Judas, you'd, you'd be gone by now. Because we are a church of the gospel. And remember what the gospel does is that it exposes us. It lays bare who we really are. And, and when it does, we either have to run away in unbelief or run to Christ who continuously forgiveness. In our worship service, this is a continual run to Jesus in all of our brokenness. But remember, we were told by Jesus that there would be false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing by their fruit you recognize. And he's saying, people with all kinds of talent are going to come along. But you don't get grapes from thorn bushes. In other words, you, you can... Be very talented, but you cannot fake the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what we have to think about. Doesn't matter how big or small we are as a church. Doesn't matter how talented I am or not. Am I being shaped by grace? Because the thing to learn from Judas is, here is a talented, skilled man did not know the gospel, and he fell into despair. I heard a really, I'm going to finish with this, I heard a really good pon podcast interview just yesterday by a man who was interviewing Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination for whom we have high regard. And the question was, the man was asking Tim Keller, how is it that leadership goes bad? Because there's an awful lot of celebrity scandal always happened, always will. How does it happen? And Tim Keller basically made this point. It's when you emphasize talent and skill over character, the fruit of the Spirit. And then Tim told the story. He said, I had lunch with a pastor, very gifted, great preacher, building a rapidly growing church, but while he was doing this, he was carrying on an extramarital affair at the same time for an extended period of time. So Tim asked Tim, how did you do this? How could you live with yourself while you were doing this? And here was the answer. He said, every Friday and Saturday, I would work on the sermon and I would be deeply convicted and I would determine I am going to call her Monday and call this off. But what came before Monday? Sunday. He'd go light it up in the pulpit. People would be crying. There would be great. And he would say, you know, I can't quit now. God is really using me. But eventually the house of cards fell. It always does. What's the problem? I'm talented. I'm skilled. I'm building a bigger church. 
but I'm not living in repentance. My, I am not living in the fruit of the Spirit because I care much more about what my talent is getting me. And that is a strong word for us. We all have talents, but what God wants most for us is the fruit of the Spirit. Because remember, there was another disciple who betrayed Jesus, wasn't there? Peter denied him three times, who fell into deep grief, but he didn't fall into despair. He went to Jesus. Jesus three times said, Simon Peter, do you love me? And restored him to ministry. What was the difference? One said, it's all about me and my skill. I have no understanding of grace. Peter, in his grief, fled to Jesus and bore the fruit that led him to be a much greater leader. And ultimately, that's what we need to be. doesn't matter how much talent you have, but as individuals, as a church, live in repentance and faith so that our character is shaped by the gospel of grace. Amen? Please join with me in our prayers of the people.